Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb, and this is author and retired doctor Henry Marsh reading from the introduction to his new book, And Finally. I'm not a scientist. Most neurosurgeons are not neuroscientists. To claim that they all are would be like saying that all plumbers are metallurgists. But as I approach the end of my life, I find myself besieged by philosophical and scientific questions that suddenly seem very important, questions which in the past I'd either taken for granted or ignored. Henry Marsh's first book, Do No Harm, was a best-selling meditation on his career as one of Britain's leading neurosurgeons. His new book, and finally, is about life on the other side of the consultant's desk. Just as the COVID pandemic took hold, he was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. How long have I got? He asked the oncologist when he got the news. The answer, if you write a book a year, you've got time to write five books. Reading, and finally, is like talking, or rather listening, to the author. A conversation with Marsh is enthralling and can go anywhere. His talk is filled with new facts, bits of history, interesting digressions into what the brain looks like, woodworking, and politics, and in this book, Dealing with Cancer, a subject that we will get to, but I wanted to start by asking him about Britain's National Health Service. The NHS celebrates its 75th anniversary this year, and it is in crisis. I asked Henry Marsh to free associate his own personal history, working for 40 years in the service. Unusually, for this country, in fact, for Europe, I went into medicine late. I went to college first, I was at Oxford University, and took a degree in politics, philosophy, and economics, and only then, then studied medicine, which is more like in America, where everybody goes to college first before they go to medical school. So I've always, politics, an interest in politics has always been an important part of my makeup, and I've always been a passionate believer in what the Americans call socialized healthcare. So I worked for the National Health Service for 40 years, it has changed profoundly during that time, particularly with respect to the autonomy and independence of senior doctors like myself. And although I remained a passionate believer in the National Health Service, I resigned at the age of 65 really with a great sense of relief because I was getting angrier and angrier at all the hurdles and difficulties and frustrations I felt at work. For the last 13 years now, we've had a conservative right-wing government, which essentially is out of sympathy with the idea of socialised health care. <clears throat> they say, oh, it's um, a bottomless pit, we can't afford it, and have more or less deliberately neglected it financially for 12 years. There is an awful lot of untruths out there being spoken about the NHS, Probably the biggest one is it's not fit for purpose, as though there's some fundamental problem with socialised health care. But in fact, the Scandinavian countries all have an identical funding system directly from taxation, and it works very well. Critics of the NHS now say, well, we should be looking at the Dutch system, which some years ago ran into a sort of funding crisis with its socialised structure, now has an insurance-based system. But if you look at all these insurance-based countries like France, like Germany, like Holland, they all spend more money per capita, 
when you take in the insurance element. They also have large bureaucracies because the insurance companies are bureaucratic, even if they're not for profit. And you have two-tier healthcare as well. Wealthier people have a better grade of insurance. So I'm not against changing the funding basis of the NHS. I think Americans who listen will have maybe a little skewed understanding of the NHS. Mm. But the main thing is that it's free at the point of provision. Yes. um, I'm very familiar with the American system because for various reasons I trained about 70 American neurosurgical residents who came to work with me in London. And I've been to America many times. And if any system is not fit for purpose, it's the American one. But the the idea that it's free, what makes the, yes. the, the NHS, I mean, my, I first encountered it when I was doing a year abroad yes. as a university student here and got my nose broken playing lacrosse, mm. trotted to <clears> the John Radcliffe Infirmary, had it fixed, no bill. Yep. That works. No, the, the point about the NHS is tax funded, but nobody pays for treatment, whatever you got. Um, so if you have a very expensive cancer requiring chemotherapy or just a twisted ankle or a sore throat, all the treatment is free. But the other thing is that you, when you trained, your training was free as well or not? Yes, it was. It wouldn't be now, but this is now. I was very lucky. I actually had two complete university degrees, and it, didn't, it cost virtually nothing at all. Um, that now has changed, but it's still heavily subsidised. So um, young doctors now will have small student debts, but nothing in comparison with the way doctors in America will go into practice of hundreds of thousands in debt. Well, when you were training American doctors who came over to mm. study neurosurgical techniques under you, did you find that their attitudes to medicine were different in part because of the massive debt they were racking up to get their educations and their degrees? They never particularly, I I was quite close to many of them, they never particularly discussed it, actually. It didn't seem to be a problem. I think in neurosurgery, a lot of them, they go into the academic system, the debt is paid off when they go join the faculty, and in private practice, it's paid off as well. So they didn't seem to be very troubled about it. Going back to your beginning, then, Paint a picture of what the NHS was like when you qualify, when you had qualified as a neurosurgeon. The big difference between the way it is now and the way it was when I started training as a neurosurgeon was what was called the firm. You had a smaller number of doctors. You worked immensely long hours, but you had a very real sense of belonging and respect. You more or less lived in the hospital. You knew all the nurses. They all knew you. You were part of a small hierarchy with a senior doctor above you. And it was, it was, I loved it. It was wonderful. You felt secure and safe, and you worked very hard. In, in England now, following, although we've left the EU, doctors work the European Working Time Directive week, which is less than 40 hours a week. In America, of course, it's 80 hours a week for, for residents. Um, and although there's something to be said for having well-slept doctors, There's a huge deficit in terms of experience because you're doing less work and a huge deficit in terms of not having that same sense of belonging when you more or less lived in the hospital during the time of your training. So it's come at a considerable price. 
how did the system work when you came in? Because we were talking earlier about how it's been run down. So what was it like when it was working well? It was working very well in the early noughties under the Blair-Brown governments who set out to spend a lot of money on it. Certainly before then, there were lots of shortages and queues. My waiting list for routine spinal surgery was a year long. So you're not that different um, for elective work. There was never a problem with emergency work. The problem now is lack of beds, which means lack of nurses. There's 133,000 job vacancies at the moment. And there's been more or less a collapse in what's called social care, which means old folks' homes. So I can't remember the percentage, but it's at least 15%, if not more, of acute medical beds are blocked by old people who do not medically need to be in hospital but can't go home. And there's no care homes for them to go to. And that has been recognised as a problem for, ooh, by both Labour and Conservative governments for 20 years, and nothing's been done to fix it. Well, it seems to me that, that one of the things is that a holistic view of care needs to be redefined. Yes, because the, the cri- all healthcare systems are in a state of crisis to a certain extent for the simple reason there are more and more old people and the nature of medical advances is treatment becomes simpler and safer. So old people who would have been written off as being untreatable 20 years ago can now be treated. But old people are frail um, and you have to have a joined-up system where they can be treated in hospital if necessary, but you need some kind of intermediate care to get them out of hospital. And that hasn't that problem has not been addressed in England, although officially people are well aware of it. For how long? Oh, at least 20 years people have been talking. So that goes back to the Blair and Brown? It, it, oh, it does. It goes back to Blair and Brown, yes. And before. And before, yeah. Take your time, Henry, and, and talk about some of the most interesting advances in the kind of surgery you did? Well, ironically, in many ways, progress in brain surgery is to make it unnecessary. And a lot of the most challenging, difficult operations, which is essentially operating on the blood vessels in the brain, on blowout skull aneurysms, has been largely replaced by non-surgical methods, so-called intravascular treatment where you put endovascular, where you put catheters and balloons inside the blood vessels. And in England, that's largely done by x-ray doctors rather than by surgeons. Um, But the the other huge change in the 40 years I was in practice was in diagnosis of modern brain scanners. So you could see things much more clearly. Your operating could be more accurate as a result, and also using increasingly sophisticated um, operating microscopes. But in terms of actual outcomes, the um, progress in results is fairly modest. And the commonest brain tumor is a highly malignant cancer um, called a glioblastoma multiforme. And there's been absolutely no real progress in survival figures for those tumors at all. We're better at selecting the small number of people who will live longer. But in terms of fundamental change, we've got nowhere. So you operated on people on glioblastoma. Oh, yes, yes. I, my, what, but what I did introduce in, in Europe, not just England, though I got the idea from my colleagues in Seattle, where I was a, an associate professor, 
was operating under local anaesthetic. So you could actually, you can map out, particularly when operating on the speech area, using a little electrical probe, which sort of stuns that bit of the brain for a few seconds. You can work out where you can operate and where you can't. Because these are tumours in the brain itself, but look like the brain tissue, more or less. And you, you can't, you know, it's not that the tumour's bright green and the normal brain is yellow. So that's now, it was controversial in England when I started doing that. I first, my first operation was in 1989 with one of my American trainees. Um, but now it's standard practice. And it's loved on television because it's very dramatic. You can see somebody wide awake with the top of their head off looking at the living brain. And it is... It's not gory, actually, but it is philosophically fascinating. And I've had my patients sometimes, if they wanted, they could see on a computer monitor at the end of the operating table their own brain. And I'd say, you know, OK, that's the bit of you which is talking to me at the moment. And I remember one patient said, it's crazy. It is, and the mind-matter problem is just extraordinary. The idea that everything we think and feel actually obeys the laws of physics. And that's something else I try to discuss in my new book because that's something which I always found absolutely extraordinary. And the problem is unresolved. And now a public service announcement. A reminder that FRDH podcast is completely dependent on its listeners for its existence. If you are enjoying this conversation, please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. And now, back to my conversation with Henry Marsh. So when you were an undergraduate reading PPE, which part of philosophy interested you most? Was it metaphysics or...? (laughs) Oxford philosophy 50 years ago... um, was, or more than 50 years ago, was all linguistic analysis and the meaning of meaning. I hated it. I stopped it. I dropped it after one year and thus did politics and economics. So it's kind of ironical that in old age, with death on the horizon, I've now got very interested in philosophy again, even then, even though, I mean, you know, free will, which is what really the mind-matter problem is about, well, it all depends what you mean by free will, and I wouldn't, I don't waste many pages in the book discussing this, other than just saying, actually, we don't have the metaphors or the analogies with which to describe our conscious and unconscious selves. I also read philosophy and um, applied to graduate school and got it in and then decided I wanted to live in the world and I didn't want to do a linguistic analysis. Yes. I exactly. wanted something very speculative, history yeah. of ideas. Read, you know, One of the reasons that you read about neuroscience, my best friend at university became a neuroscientist and an academic and he's actually he's still teaching, mm-hmm. hasn't retired yet. And the idea... As a free will, a material body, I don't see why we have always seen that as a dichotomy. The more one learns about the electrical processes that go on, it's quite extraordinary. It is extraordinary, and it's also something very close to my heart, which is the traditional orthodox medicine and doctors have just dismissed so many things. Oh, it's hysterical, it's all in the mind. You know, we don't have to pay any attention to our patients' emotional feelings or needs. 
And of course, this is totally wrong. I mean, the evidence is now overwhelming, particularly with childhood, that our our health and longevity in later life is hugely influenced by our first few years of life. And a loving upbringing is very important. Um, And the link link between poor health uh, and poverty and inequality in very unequal countries like America and Britain is is overwhelming. And that is an aspect of the mind-brain problem. And denying that actually mind and brain are part of the same same phenomenon. The philosophers we read like Ludwig Wittgenstein, yes. who focused on language. How do, you, how do I know that when I say I'm describing the fire in the fireplace over there, that that's the same thing you were seeing? And, and you play mind games like this. But clearly, there is, you, you just have to take on, I hate to say take on faith, but you have to take on faith that you and I are experiencing that fire in roughly the same way, although it's on your back, so your back is warmer. And I assume your your red is the same as my red. Um, but you have to assume that. Now, I, I got very irritated and frustrated by philosophers spinning out endless sentences and subclauses sort of reveling in this. You accept it. I'm a very practical person. <clears throat> I, I became a doctor because I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, I'm always making things. I do a lot of drawing and things like that. I, I, I found philosophy annoying. But the irony, as I said earlier, the irony now is some of it's actually, as I reach the end of my life, is actually quite important. He's trying to phrase the questions which have sort of always fascinated me, in particular about... Now, having operated upon people's brains while they're awake, it is so wonderful and so mysterious. I want to give that some kind of verbal recognition. But are you just formulating questions? Or are you beginning to to answer some of the questions that have been forming? I think it's mainly it's mainly formulating the question and saying we don't have the answer. And when it comes to the neuro neurological basis of consciousness, I don't think we ever will have the answer personally because you can't experiment on consciousness in the way you do with other physical phenomena. You can't take it apart. You can't put it back together again. You can only experiment on your own consciousness and as you alter your consciousness, you can no longer observe it. What do you mean by consciousness? I mean, well, the, 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 the waking flow that you and I and everybody who's listening, I assume, yeah. is experiencing in some way. I mean, surely you, you would know where in the brain to disconnect a little something and well, interrupt the that. Well, the model, which is huge, probably a huge simplification, the neuromedical, neurological model of consciousness, is you have a sort of electric cable, which is a brain stem. If you, very small areas of damage to the brain stem will render somebody in a deep coma. But it's rather like one of those um, fiber, fiber lights with a lot millions of glass fibers and little lights shining at the end. If you cut the power cord to the glass optic, the glass fiber light, it is off. If you keep the power supply intact but start smashing all the little bulbs at the end of the glass fibers, it takes quite a long time before the patient becomes unconscious. And that is the cerebral cortex, the surface of the brain where it seems that the sort of content of consciousness goes on. But there's endless arguments about this, and some people say consciousness is in the brainstem. Uh, I mentioned this in my book with these poor babies, well, maybe they're not poor, 
were born without a cerebral cortex, only a brainstem, um, more or less. And they have facial expressions, and some people say they're just reflexes. There's no there's no conscious or sentient, let's say, no sentient correlate. Other people say these very brain-damaged babies have feelings. Some people now argue that insects could have feelings. There are certain similarities in the misstructure of part of the brain called the midbrain between insects and mammals. Um, and so we have to think about sentience, really, which is the ability to feel pain. Being actually conscious and then being self-conscious is, is another is another step up. There are many degrees of consciousness. And you became a neurosurgeon. Do you think it's related to to your um, incomplete philosophical studies? Partly is also, as my anthropological wife says, Henry, or a typical silverback gorilla, alpha male. I was drawn to neurosurgery by glamour, importance, risk taking. What I didn't realize at that, and also my son had had a brain tumor and had been at the age of three months and had been successfully operated on. I don't think that in itself was, was one thing. We look back in our lives and think, yes, it was always binary decisions, but in fact, it wasn't like that at all, probably. Um, but what I certainly was attracted by risk, I have that sort of personality. I, I regard myself as a coward, but actually I like frightening myself a bit. And I, as that came home to me when I was in, in Kiev a couple of months ago and the cruise missiles arrived at the same time as I did at the railway station, and I wasn't frightened. I, I'm not saying it was fun, but, you know, when you're under fire, you live very intensely. And But I, what I didn't realise was, until much later, that, yes, there were risks, but the risks were not just to the patients, there were risks to me as a human being, as a person. And funnily enough, now that I've retired from surgery, I still teach and lecture. I don't see patients in this country. I have done recently in Ukraine. I um, feel a much more complete human being now that I'm no longer a doctor and I'm no longer having to divide the human race into the people I sympathize with, a small number, colleagues and family, and that sea of patients who are sort of Below me. Yeah. Well, well, now I suppose is the time to tell listeners about how you and I met, because uh, on the morning that you were <laughs> you were arriving in Kiev railway yes. station under fire, I was upstairs at a hospital in Lviv when they went by, and I have to tell you when they when they went by my yes. window, um, and I couldn't move because I'd fallen and broken my leg. You know, I I've been under fire as a journalist. Yes. I know how to behave, and I know, you know. I always know where the exit is, or at least where some cover is. Yeah. This, I mean, I was stuck, and they couldn't get me down to the shelter. And I was alone on that seventh floor. I knew I was alone. And when the second one went by and the building shook, it was a, that really was the only time I've ever been under fire where I felt, you know, uh, afraid in a way, you know, where, where I could not yeah. think what I should do next. Yeah. But what's um, interesting is that, we met because I fell over my feet in Lviv at a book fair on the way to a reception. And you swore, and a few feet away was my very close colleague, Andrew Mizak, who's a neurosurgeon. I've been, in fact, I was talking to him this morning on the phone about various cases of his. And he's a very nice guy, and he's very well connected. 
And you were very lucky he was there. <laughs> I'm very lucky. That, but he was also, he's also your translator into yes, Ukrainian. He, he, that's right. He's translated two of my books into Ukrainian. He's a very close personal friend. There's something very middle European about medical men who go through their training and become practicing doctors, and then their brains need a little bit more stimulation. Yeah. So they become writers, or in Andre's sense, uh, case, a translator. A translator. Yeah. Well, he's a very he's a very cultured guy, and like many Western Ukrainians, he I wouldn't say he's ashamed, but he bitterly resents the Russian-Soviet influence on Ukraine for so long. Um, you know, of course, Western Ukraine was part of Poland and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they regard themselves as Europeans. And like many of my friends there, until recently, they all had a bit of a well, really an inferiority complex, a chip on their shoulder, and Andrew was always struggling to. So catch up in a way. But now, of course, they're no longer underdogs. The Ukrainians have become heroic in a real in a real sense. And although God knows what will happen in future and reconstructing the country is not going to be straightforward, assuming the war goes well, and that's not certain. It is marvellous to see the underdogs become these much more self-confident people. It's been wonderful to watch because I've been going there for 30 years. It's really my... What, my what, brought, you there, what brought you there in the first place? Well, purely by chance, uh, an English businessman, just after independence, wanted to sell medical equipment. He, he spoke Russian. He'd been to um, university in, to learn Russian in England. And he was a trader and he sold Western stuff in, in the Soviet Union. And come independence, he hoped to sell medical equipment in Ukraine. I think a bit... In retrospect, a bit, I'm a bit hopeful, given the poverty of the country. But anyway, there, there was a huge Soviet-era neurosurgical hospital in Kiev. One of two, the other one was a Bordienko in Moscow. And he thought, if I take an English neurosurgeon out to give some lectures, it'll sort of create goodwill. And I went out there. I was horrified by the conditions I found, although it, it wasn't a surprise. I, I'd sort of kept up my reading about it. I, special, I did a special paper at Oxford in, in Soviet politics. And I met a very, very energetic, dynamic, slightly sort of fanatical young neurosurgeon. And he, he was able to get permission to come and spend three months working with me in London in the days when the NHS was very generous. And if Mr. Marsh said, I want to do this, nobody would disagree. It would be impossible now. So he, he worked with me for quite a long time, um, went back, and I said, well, look, you know, I reckon I can take one or two weeks off a year to come and work with you. And I would drive from London to Kiev taking second-hand equipment, operating mouthscopes, which I sort of bought myself and found myself. And it all went wonderfully. It was very difficult, you know, a lot of professional jealousy. Ukraine's not a very civilized country in many ways. But it was all ultimately, it was animal farm. I thought I was helping my colleague rebel against a very dictatorial, old-fashioned Soviet-style professors. And in fact, as he became more and more famous and successful, he became very successful, um, he became more and more of a dogmatic, autocratic Soviet professor himself, would only teach his son, wouldn't share his knowledge of anybody else. And eventually, when I discovered there'd been one or two bad results from operations we'd done together, which he hadn't told me about, uh, I, I had to stop working with him. And that's why I work with younger people like Andrei, who grew up after the Soviet Union and have a very different mindset. Mm. But then today, now, now you're, you're hooked in 
um, while the war is going on. Yes. Do you have any plans to go back in the near future? Well, my my wife is convinced I'll get blown up. I'm not. I have no worries about going back at all. I d- I'm not a war surgeon, and in fact, neurosurgery is a very minor part of battlefield surgery. All you do is minor surgery on superficial head wounds. You can't sort of do major brain surgery. Um, and it, although 25% of deaths <clears throat> in war zones are from head injuries. But I did do some sort of webinar teaching with uh, the wonderful English war surgeon called David Knott, who's become a very good friend. He's a remarkable man. And he's been out to Ukraine several times teaching. And he wanted me to come out with him, but I, my wife was going to have a nervous breakdown. So, um, so I'm kind of, at the moment, I have a plan to try to, re- to start a charitable fund to improve palliative care in Ukraine, which is sadly lacking. When I was there recently, I went out with a very good friend of mine called Rachel Clark, who is a very well-known English journalist, writes as a guardian, but is also a palliative care doctor. And we met a few years ago and became very good friends. So I took her out with me and we visited various sort of palliative care facilities. And we reckon there was huge potential for training and help. And palliative care, unlike brain surgery, does not require some million pound machines. So that's the plan. And we're working on it at the moment. Which brings us to the subject of cancer, which is... In in a way, the reason the book was written and it's yes. called "And Finally," yes. you are in remission. Yes. That's great, but your experience with cancer was, I think, it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. It didn't teach me and tell me anything new about what it's like to be a patient. I knew from my wife Kate Fox, who's an anthropologist and has written a wonderful best-selling book called Watching the English. That she has Crohn's disease, so she's often in, been in hospital. And as an anthropologist, she is a trained observer. She made it quite clear to me what it was like being a patient. In other words, humiliating, demeaning, disempowering, frightening. So it didn't come as a surprise. And also, I, I thought my son was going to die 40 years ago when he, was under, when he had his brain tumour. So that wasn't a surprise. I was a little bit surprised because I'm a well-known surgeon and writer, but there's absolutely no red carpet rolled out for me whatsoever. But in a sense, I was quite pleased by that. Um, I went more to the other extreme of not wanting to sort of throw my weight around and say, look, I, I used to do all the brain surgery in this hospital. So that didn't matter. What did surprise me, two things surprised me. One was, although I'd been seeing patients with cancer throughout my working life, I really was genuinely surprised when I had it myself. So complete had the delusion set in that illness happened to patients and not to doctors. So one of the great balancing acts you have to do as a doctor is find a balance between being compassionate and kind and being detached. And as I said earlier, you pay a price, which is you become a slightly incomplete person. You, become, you have to be detached, particularly if you do high-risk surgery like brain surgery, because you have to protect yourself if things go badly. So uh, I was, it was ridiculous. I'd had symptoms of the cancer for more than a year, but both through sort of unconscious fear and sort of medical denial, I left it far too late. So my PSA, when I was finally diagnosed, was 130. Only 4% of people have a PSA that high. 
and 75% will be dead within five years. Um, on the other hand, I haven't got metastatic disease or lymph node involvement, so maybe I'll be one of a lucky 25%. The other surprise was when I didn't know, when I knew I had a very serious cancer and didn't know if I had widespread metastatic disease or not, quite unbidden. And I've always, I quote in my first book this wonderful thing that the French surgeon René Leriche wrote, saying all surgeons carry within themselves an inner cemetery. And it's a place to which they have to go from time to time and think about their mistakes. And I knew, I've got a, I knew I had a pretty big inner cemetery. I'd had a huge, very busy practice. And I'd been in practice for years. But I suddenly found I was remembering lots of it. There was a much bigger cemetery than I'd realised. There were all sorts of memories of patients I felt I'd failed. Not that I necessarily made a mistake, but basically where I'd failed. Patients I hadn't thought about for 30 or 40 years. And I was amazed by that. And there were like sort of ghosts surrounding, not exactly accusing me, but sort of looking at me. I think part of the unconscious, rather childish motivation was that, you know, if they forgive me, I'll be all right, you know. <laughs> but it was also a realisation that, you know, I really didn't know how how I dealt with them, how they, what they thought about me. And one of the other great challenges about being a doctor, which I think many doctors don't realise, is you never get criticised. You know, if you write a book or make a TV program, you can look at it, you can edit it. But when you talk to patients, you never know. They're never going to tell you what they think of you. And I think most of us and think we're probably kinder and more compassionate and come across as being terribly nice than we really were. I, I went out to dinner with one of my former patients last week. It was the 10th anniversary. Very difficult operation. tumor called a pineloma, a very good result. And he's very nice, and he wanted to celebrate the 10th anniversary. And I kept on kind of, sort of nudge him to say how, I'd sp- how nice I'd been and how sympathetic in the way I'd spoken to him. But no, it didn't. he didn't say I was unsympathetic. He was as concerned with the fact the operation had gone well. He remembered everything I'd said. And you know, reading between the lines, I'd really been a bit sort of detached, you know. Um, yeah, just as an outsider who's been here a long time, yeah. I have to say that the super specialists of that come out of British training yeah. really are a lot more detached and a lot less friendly. Personal, friendly. I, possibly because of the nature of the the way the system is organised. Well, this. This is one of the downsides of socialised healthcare. If you wave £50 notes in front of doctors, it's remarkable what it does to their interpersonal communication skills. On the, the disadvantage of socialization of a state system is however you speak to patients, however badly you treat them, you know, the patients still keep on coming. So you have no interest in actually being nice. Yeah. And... That was the other surprise. I actually was, and I'd always thought of myself because I went into medicine late because of my experiences and my son. I always thought of myself as being a pretty sympathetic doctor. But as when I was actually ill myself and in fear of dying, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I was or wasn't. But I didn't know. I no longer knew. I was full of doubt. Mm. And most of my, I do a lot of. I'm just lecturing this evening to medical students. And most of my lectures are all about being nice, being kind to patients. I know that in 
family practitioner training in this country, part of it has to be they're actually videoed with the patient's agreement, talking to patients, which I think is a very good idea. I mean, with public speaking, I've done an awful lot and been films and I've often seen myself talking. And it's very interesting. You get much better if you can see yourself mm. talking in public. Let me, let me just go back mm. to, to, to the cancer, which may bring us back to the beginning and yeah. then to an end, Yes, which is there you were 70 years old or just yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. Mm. And now you're a patient yeah. in this system that you've seen being run down. Mm. What was it like to be a patient in the NHS? It wasn't a problem because cancer is relatively protected. I went to one of the best hospitals in the country, which is cancer only. I knew where to go, so it wasn't a problem for me. Mm. Um, if you go out, if you go, if you live in London, and you go to one of the big teaching hospitals, you'll get world-class treatment, free of charge. If you live out in the sticks somewhere, particularly up in the northeast or northwest of England you will not necessarily get such good treatment. Mm. It's very, it, it, and all healthcare systems are unequal to a certain extent. <clears throat> they all reflect their underlying society, which is why the Scandinavian countries, they're a bit unequal, but much less than anywhere else in the world. And they have very good healthcare systems. Mm. I mean, you cannot divorce a healthcare system from politics and economics. Now that you're in remission... How? Until, until two weeks, I've got Max PSA in three weeks' time. <laughs> and I'm off hormone therapy, probably only temporarily, and that's made a huge difference right. to come off hormone therapy. I feel much, much better. Going back to those questions, <clears throat> philosophical questions, yes. I mean, as you describe it in the book, it's a bit of an ordeal. Yes. And, you know, having been through it, has it changed outlook? Has yes. it oh, oh, it has, only, but only recently. I am really, I mean, in three weeks' time, I've got a PSA. And if it shows the PSA has gone up, it means the cancer's coming back. And it's statistically, that's very likely. But I'm completely Buddhist karmic about it at the moment. I mean, the thought's there. Um, but at the moment, as far as I'm concerned, the future doesn't exist which is very different from the man I was before all this. And I was always worrying about the future. I was driven, striving, achieving. Um, but I, I'm not in denial. But at the moment, it's partly because coming off two years of hormone therapy, you do get a lot of fatigue and muscle weakness. And although I was still running and exercising, it really was becoming very difficult. I put weight on, which I hated. It's putting a sort of fat sort of eunuch's paunch around my midriff. Um, and that stopped a few weeks ago, and I just feel much better. So I, I fear that if I have to go back on the hormone therapy, I'll then go like that again. But at the moment, I'm very happy living in the present. And I look back, and it is a very important concept, and I was trying to explain this to a friend last night over dinner who's got prostate cancer as well, um, probably worse than mine, but it's hard to know. And I said, look, you know, we've both had very complete lives. We've got loving families. We can look back on our lives without bitter regret. And that's very fortunate and a great privilege. And in my more sardonic moments, I say, I regard my cancer as vaccination against Alzheimer's. But that's sort of braggadocio, you know, that's bravura. Henry Marsh, thank you very much. Michael, that's my pleasure. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Henry Marsh for his time 
And Finally is published in the U.S. by St. Martin's Press and in the U.K. by Jonathan Cape. And a reminder, visit www.goldfarbpod.com where there are literally weeks of listening to catch up on and you can make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha.